to yet another Progress City Town Hall. This is another in our series of interviews with people who have contributed to the Disney legacy. And uh, I'm Michael Crawford. With me, as always, is Jeff Crawford. Hiya, Jeff. How's it going? It's good to be here. I love talking about music. That's what we're going to be doing some of today. We've our last episode and our next episode were sandwiched between all this music stuff. It's made me very happy. Yeah, it's a very musical couple of months. Uh, we like to talk about music a lot on this podcast anyway, but these are really in-depth series of episodes, and thankfully, we are speaking to some of the people most suited to speak to this subject, some people who have really contributed to the Disney musical legacy in one way or another. So who are we talking to this month? Well, today it's my pleasure to welcome Don Dorsey to the podcast. Don has been an audio engineer, music consultant, and producer of nighttime spectaculars, both in and out of Disney for decades. Don is responsible for some of the most beloved nighttime attractions in the Disney parks and has also worked with Universal, Six Flags, Radio City Music Hall, and more. Don has also been a recording artist in his own right, so we have a lot to get to. But first, I wanted to warmly welcome Don to our podcast. Don, thanks for joining us. Hey, Jeff. Good to see you. Good to see you, too. So you got brought into Disney originally through your knowledge of the synthesizer. What drew you to the synthesizer as an instrument? Oh, boy. Aside from the fact that it was like the most amazing thing a kid of <laughs> 21 had seen in his entire life. Um, what happened was a, a friend had been scouting around at a local music store, and they had just taken in a mini Moog and had it on display, and so he played with it for a while, and then came rushing over and said, Don, Don, you got to see this. So we went down, and I played with it for about two minutes before I knew I had to have it, <laughs> and then stayed until the store closed, um, which only made it even more inevitable. And then uh, had to convince my mother that it was worth a modest loan of, I think it was at that time, $1,500, oh, wow. which was in 1971. That was an exorbitant amount. Yeah. And she said, okay. So Switched on Bach was a major hit for what it was, which was kind of an avant-garde synth record. Were you aware of that? And why do you think that classical music and synthesizers made such a good match at this time? Well, yes, I was aware of that. In fact, that was part of the reason that getting my hands on a mini Moog was so persuasive. Mm -hmm. I had been primed by listening to Switched On Bach, and I was classically trained. Um, I studied piano uh, both as a youngster and also in college. Uh, coming from the classical angle. So I was ready to, to challenge myself with that exact thing. Right. I mean, it's, it's, it's interesting how there's a, a couple of different strands of, of what was happening at the time that you're encountering uh, the synthesizer, but, but definitely one of those is that classical music. It, it seems to me that it's, uh, a way to introduce this technology to people that maybe seems comforting or, or just gives them some context. I, I don't know. Do you have any thoughts about that? Well, I remember 
watching lots of Leonard Bernstein concerts and lectures when I was growing up. And the connection to classical music, there are just so many familiar melodies there. Mm -hmm. And to have a new sound applied to familiar melodies, I think, was the hook that got people to wake up to this electronic box that wasn't just making squeaks and blips and bloops anymore. It was actually performing something that they found familiar and accessible. And that is ultimately one of the reasons that uh, brought me back to Bachbusters in 1985, because mm -hmm. the advancement in the capabilities of synthesizers in general, going from monophonic to polyphonic, and from very simple programs that you had to remember by drawing a chart and those that you could press a button and recall instantly made it much more of a performance instrument. And so there was a lot more emotion to be conveyed, a lot more sonic textures to explore, all that had more meaningful musical applications in bringing not just electronic sounds to classical but sounds that sort of lived in a space in between the acoustic and electronic. Right, right. Yeah, I, I definitely want to get to those records. I, so you get the mini Moog, and then you have some experience in some studios in Southern California, uh, both with Bob Stone at United Audio and Jose Feliciano's studio in Orange, California. Can you tell me a little bit about that? Yeah, the Jose Feliciano connection was kind of interesting because... I had had my Minimoog for, I think, about a year and a half. And somebody had mentioned to me that Jose Feliciano had built a recording studio in Tustin. And I'd been working out of a studio in Santa Ana, United Audio, which is where I met Bob Stone and where he sort of mentored me in my first recording uh, engineering learning during the high school band recording phase. Oh, wow. And so, being a curious fellow, I sought out the location in Tustin where Dijobi Studios was located and let myself in, wandered down the hall, opened the door to a control room and found an engineer there who was, I don't even remember what he was doing, but he was friendly and said, oh, come on in, what's up? And we got to chatting away and, and I said, I have a Minimoog and he says, well, go get it. <laughs> <laughs> so I drove home and came back with the Minimoog, and we ended up that night, overnight and in early next morning, recording a track sort of spontaneously. Oh, wow. uh, the title of the track was called No. <laughs> and the reason for that is because as uh, Bobby Thomas, who was the engineer who played drums, uh, was kicking off the beat, he screamed out, no! <laughs> and so that became the name of the track. We finished up the tune, established a relationship, and my engineering advanced even more through my contact with him. And he put me on to uh, Jose's wife, who was managing him. And she said, oh, do you do music transcribing? Because we've got all these songs that Jose has recorded and we need to write them down and send them in for copyright. Uh -huh. And at that time I was a student at Cal State Fullerton in the music department and needed the income. So I said, sure. So for 
a few years, I did all of the lead sheets for the artists that they produced out of Jose's studio. Oh, how cool. What an education that had to have been. It was a lot of fun. I got to hear things before anybody else heard them. I did the lead sheets for Chico and the Man theme song and uh, some other fun tunes. How great. Uh, I would have to ask, do you still have a recording of No? Oh, of course I do. Oh, good, good, good. I hoped you would. It, through various contacts, and I don't recall exactly how, but it was adopted and made into a commercial for Pacific Stereo. Huh. Uh, at which point it was retitled Sound Experience. <laughs> great titles, great titles. So you end up hooking up with Jack Wagner at Disneyland for the America on Parade parade, which was a big deal. It was a huge parade. And, uh, and I just wanted to know what it was like to work with Jack Wagner. I think Jack and I were kindred spirits from different generations. He was, he was very much the consummate professional when it came to his work ethic and his desire to produce the perfect product and to produce it quickly and on budget. And he also loved to goof around and be silly. And, you know, I was heading towards professionalism, and I love goofing around. So uh, we hit it off. I originally came to his attention through the Moog company. I had hooked up with the local Moog sales rep in L.A. and Orange County and got to do some demonstrations for them. And when Jack and Jim Christensen needed a mini Moog for a project... This was before America on Parade. Uh, they got my name, and they gave me a call, and that's how I first met Jack. And then later he followed up when I did a live concert with two Moogs and a concert band at Fullerton College. And he came up afterwards and said, you know, I may have a job for you. And that became America on Parade. That brings up a question I have. Jack Wagner was kind of the announcer of Disneyland, but he worked on so much stuff in, in Disneyland and later in Walt Disney World. And then there's Jim Christensen, who was the musical director of Disneyland. Am I getting that right? Yes. How did, how did their jobs differ? Well, Jim Christensen was uh, the arranger and in charge of the Disneyland band. Anytime there was a parade to be recorded or something, he would... Uh, if not doing the arrangements himself, he would select the arrangers, the musicians. Jack was the producer, and so he was in charge of booking the studio, making sure that everybody showed up on time, that it was recorded properly, that it was mixed properly. There were a lot of technical requirements for show tapes at the Disney parks, and so he rode herd over all of that. Wow. And when I came in, because of my earlier studio experience, um, Jack had been doing basically uh, music production for background music, basically chaining a bunch of existing tracks into uh, a nice flowing program and doing voiceover work. So his level of recording engineering was pretty limited. And I had was able to come in and bring alignment tapes and show him how to demagnetize his tape machines and make sure that everything was technically up to stuff in his home studio. So we complemented each other in that way. 
Yeah, I mean, that's one of the interesting things that that he's responsible for is really this revolution in background music for the parks. Uh, when did that start? And were you involved in that with him? I mean, did he just have a giant record collection that he went through for these things? or He had a giant record collection. Jack was a top DJ in the L.A. market at KHJ Radio in the 60s. And so being a DJ and being a member of the Recording Academy, he basically got his hands on every album that came out that was of interest to him. And when he was brought into Disneyland originally in 1970 to fix the background music, make it more appropriate for each area, he had all those resources. He was basically primed to take on that job. The announcing came along later, as my understanding is. Um, and then, like a lot of things, I think in the late 60s and early 70s, if you were working with somebody and they found out you had another skill or another talent, then they would start to use you for that. And as I look back at my career, it's sort of been that path of right place, right time with right. a suggestion or an idea or a skill that was needed at a critical moment in time right i mean that yeah seems like both of you came together there just perfect time so what was the background music like before he started working on that did they have speakers everywhere were they uh, playing music well i don't have a good memory of disneyland prior to 1975 <laughs> when i got directly involved uh -huh. i had been to the park a couple times over the years we I grew up in Fullerton. We could see the fireworks from our porch at home. Mm. And Jack has said that the background on Main Street prior to his involvement was along the lines of current popular hits like Mrs. Robinson. That's so hard to imagine. <laughs> yes. Yeah, so while, you're, while you're walking down Main Street, USA and staring at a castle, you're hearing... Um, <sighs> Mrs. Robinson. It was the strangest non sequitur. And uh, so he was brought in to fix that and make it more appropriate to the visual experience and the whole thematic environment. And when he did that, I guess that was when they discovered he also had this rich, dulcet tones of yes. ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls. <laughs> And so he became the voice of Disneyland. And so you, he worked out of his home, correct? What was his studio like? Well, it was about, I'm going to guess it was about a, a 8 by 12 room. The tape machines were, at the, the main tape machines were at one end, the, the uh, four tracks and the two track. And then he had a bank of cassette machines, about 10 of them, because he had to make rehearsal cassettes by the dozens. Mm. Uh, he had a couple of uh, turntables on the opposite side from the cassette decks. And then at the back of the room was a closet just filled with LPs. Wow. So interesting. So like we said, America on Parade, this is a big deal. This is an idea of Bob Yanni, who is producing this show. And did you work with Bob much, or were you mostly just working with Jack? Well, Bob was the vice president of entertainment. And while I was working with Jack, I would tag along to 
production meetings and so on, including the very first launch of America on Parade in Florida at Walt Disney World. And up to that point, I was basically on hourly status, working week mm -hmm. to week with Jack. We would meet at his dining room to record whatever had to be recorded, then head off to United Audio to do whatever mixing needed to be done, and then play the results for Bob. And just from hanging out and being around and, I guess, doing the right thing, Jack asked Bob to bring me on full-time as his protege. Mm -hmm. And so that happened between the opening of, Walt, of America on Parade in Walt Disney World and America on Parade at Disneyland. And then I stood on a rooftop with a stopwatch and helped to implement this massive introduction that Bob had envisioned that had to conclude as the parade was arriving in each area of the park. So it was this exercise in back timing, you know, kicking off at exactly the right time, knowing how fast floats move and when they were going to get to each area. And that's how I spent my first year and a half when I wasn't <laughs> working with Jack in a studio. I was on a rooftop with a headset and a stopwatch, making sure that uh, the audio intro didn't run into the first float. I imagine I know which one you preferred. <laughs> it was all really crazy fun. So this is a really interesting music to this parade. How did this conceit of recording a band organ with a with a synthesizer come come about? Bob was fascinated with mechanical instruments. And I guess that the the band organ mechanical instrument sound appealed to him in the context of early America. And the synthesizer appealed to him in the context of then current America. And so the conceit was to blend the two and create a new type of sound that spoke to the early country and the current country. So that was my gig, was to figure out how to take the band organ and kind of find sounds that weren't too electronic freaky, but that helped sort of spice up the band organ into something that people hadn't really heard before. Yeah. So you record the, they recorded the Sadie May was the name of this band organ. And my brother and I talked about just on the uh, last episode that they had been planning a show at Fort Wilderness that was going to involve this Sadie May. Were you aware of that at the time? Okay. Right after America on Parade, and I had been there for, I think this was even before the parade concluded, Bob had been so enamored with Sadie May and the sound um, that he made a deal with the gentleman that owned Sadie May and an entire museum full of these instruments. Hmm. That was Paul Eakins, and his museum was in Sykeston, Missouri. So Bob put me on a plane to Sykeston to go check out all these instruments, inventory all of the piano rolls and the punched books that oh, some of the wow. instruments played, and bring home a very particular instrument that booked its own first-class seat on the way home huh. uh, for his his own collection. And the rest uh, became Disney property. 
And I hadn't heard that Sadie Mae was considered for a show, but it doesn't surprise me at all because Bob was really fond of what those instruments represented and the unique sound that they would lend to a place like Fort Wilderness or uh, Pioneer Hall, um, any of those themed environments that Disney had all over the property. Right. You got to wonder what happened to those. I mean, I mean, I'm assuming that they sold some of them off. Do you know what? Yeah, I visited some of them in a warehouse uh, many years later. Some of them found their way into executive homes. Uh-huh. Um, <laughs> I was chastised for bringing that to Bob's attention. Um, <laughs> you know, I had an inventory. I had been very diligent at making sure I knew where everything was. And when things turned up missing, there's an oxymoron for you. Um <laughs> I had to go to Bob and say, Bob, I don't know what's happening with these. And he just said, don't worry about it. Huh. Well, so that brings me, you know, me and my brother, we grew up with this documentary on the Main Street Electrical Parade from 1986. It showed on the Disney Channel. Yeah. And Bob is so debonair and, you know, he's just such a cool guy. What what was he like? Exactly like what you see. (laughs) Um. The, there's one moment when he sort of had an had a great opportunity to drop character and didn't. <laughs> and that was during the opening of America on Parade at Walt Disney World. We had a production meeting back at his uh, condominium. And being the patriot that he is and was, he had baked a cherry pie for everyone to enjoy while we were doing our business. Naturally. And as he went to the kitchen to retrieve the cherry pie from the oven, he pulled it out and it flipped over, spraying bright red cherries all over the kitchen and his white suit. <laughs> and in a typical Bob Yanni fashion, he, he just said, oh, I'll deal with that later. <laughs> And we resumed the meeting. <laughs> so tell me a little bit about this trip down to, to Walt Disney World. This was your first time. Was this your first time down there in Florida? Yes. I had never been to Walt Disney World. It had only opened a few years before. And this was the biggest project I'd ever worked on to that point. And so I was talking with Jack and I said, you know, is there any way that I could go down there and see the parade? And he thought about it and he said, yes, I have a mission for you. You will go down before I do and you will hand carry the master tapes. Ooh, yes. And deliver them uh, for pre-production. And then I will show up for the rehearsals and you can chauffeur me around in my rental car and attend production meetings. I tend to think that he was anticipating the request to bring me on as his protege at that point, but I didn't know it. Mm. So what were your impressions down there? I mean, that's such a world away from Southern California and Disneyland. That's the idea. (laughs) (laughs) Um, It was, I arrived late one afternoon and drove out I-4 in a pouring rain, just terrified that I was going to (laughs) either run off the road or be hit from behind by somebody because I literally couldn't see the front of the car. It was raining so hard. (laughs) And if you've been to Florida, you know how bad the rain can be for a short period of time, almost every afternoon in the summer. 
so I checked, made it to the Polynesian, checked into the Polynesian, uh, went to sleep. Next morning I woke up and to my surprise, as I attempted to look out the sliding door to Bay Lake, it was all fogged up. <laughs> my first experience with severe humidity. So I... I opened the door and I, it was hit by this wave of heavy air and I went, it, but the view was perfect. So I went to get my camera and when I took the lens cover off the camera, the camera fogged up. I'm looking through the, <laughs> looking through the viewfinder and there's like nothing to be seen. It's this gray mass of moisture that did clear up. So, but that was, that was my Florida baptism. And then I headed over to, um, Studio D and met with Tom Durrell and we took care of business. Yeah, I'd like to hear about Studio D. Where where was that located and and how was that facility at that time? Studio D is directly underneath Fantasyland. Uh-huh. Uh right about I think where the carousel is. When I would go into the park, I would drive around the park and come in from the north. There was an entrance near the where the tunnel started. And there was parking down there, and then I would have about fifty yard walk down the tunnel to a rather nondescript door uh, against a blank wall with all kinds of postings and information and employee stuff. And Studio D was inside that door, and I'm going to guess it was probably thirty feet by fifteen feet. Hmm. Uh, that was the main room where the tape machines were. Then there was a mixing board, a neve board off to one side, probably another eight by 20. Then there was a, an actual recording room, which was probably 30 by 20. And wow. then behind all of those facilities was what they call DAX, which is yes. Disney audio central something with an S. Um, and that's where all of the loop playback machines for the attractions were located. Everything was in one massive room. Yeah, I I had no idea that that was all down there. I knew about decks, but uh, that is really interesting. What, what would they record down there? Honestly, I don't know. It, it might have been uh, used for recording atmosphere groups mm -hmm. or small musical ensembles for small production shows. I don't know. But with a studio and a rather large Neve console, they could have done just about anything down right. there. Right. Right. Uh, so I've seen some pictures of you listening back with the guys to a mix of this parade on Main Street. That must have been Disneyland. That's uh, right. What is What was that like, listening to mix notes on the field like that? Well, there were no notes. There were no notes. It was just the way it, it was. was. like, here it is. Do you <laughs> like it? Uh, and had he not liked it, there would have been notes. But right. to all of our surprise, he said, that's fine. Well, What's next? That's the best answer in audio production. So you take the master tapes down there. What, what else happens on this trip? Late night rehearsals with parade floats that would either cooperate or not cooperate. People wearing very large plastic heads. <laughs> uh and those would be the performers and not us. Um, 
it was for me it was just fascinating seeing how a large scale production with moving pieces and a lot of bodies and a lot of costumes that had to be put on in a very specific order um, the apparatus of applying the giant heads with the neck braces and all of that and all of this happened you know after eight o'clock at night and before two or three in the morning in those days Disney World wasn't typically open late at night and so as soon as the park was clear we'd get busy and do what we could get done before people had to clock out or catch the last bus home or whatever they did um, and then we would have a production meeting ending before the sun came up how long did that process take i think it was about a week mm-hmm. a week to 10 days and so once that is done, you are now working uh, with Jack Wagner. What, what kind of projects did you work on next? Well, America on Parade still had lots to do because this seven and a half minute intro uh, required changing the voiceover every week for a different state of the union. Ah, interesting. Over the entire run of the parade. And so we had to produce those master tapes for both Disneyland and Walt Disney World and get those shipped out in advance. And because it it wasn't digital assembly, every time you made a change, you had to dub the entire seven and a half minutes again. So 50 states times seven and a half minutes (laughs) is too much time out of my life. Yeah. Uh, where did those master tapes live uh, when they were uh, the uh, the original ones? Did you have to go get them from somewhere, or did they stay at Jack's studio? They stayed with Jack. Mm-hmm. The weekly updates would be sent to the sound shop at Disneyland and to Tom Durrell at Walt Disney World. And they would produce one-shot cartridges. The Because it was seven and a half minutes long, and the parade moved at the pace that it moved, three intros had to be playing at the same time in different areas and at different points in the content. So they had to be on cartridges that could be started at the appropriate times. This was my job to figure out when to start each one so the parade would catch up to it at exactly the right moment. So after the production of the original master, they had to be duplicated, edited and loaded into loopable cartridges and then transported to the audio control rooms in both parks. Was this the first parade that kind of used this zoning kind of control? It seems like a big high-tech thing for this time period. Well, there weren't a lot of zones. There were, I think there were five. We had Small World, we had Matterhorn Way, The Hub, Main Street, and Town Square. So there wasn't the kind of very slick, finessing speaker-by-speaker that we were able to do starting in the early 2000s is when we started doing speaker-by-speaker. So it was a question of basically turning a knob up at the right time. (laughs) There was literally a, a panel with three rows of five knobs and a gentleman standing there on the headset with me on the other end of the headset. And I would say, small world, ready, go. And he would turn the knob up. And 
then when we started doing opening windows for the return of Main Street Electrical Parade, it wasn't just turn the knob up. It was now you got to turn one knob up and another one down at exactly the right moment. Mm. So we we built parade audio support technology as we went along and as we got new creative challenges from the entertainment division. Now, before you get to Main Street Electrical Parade, you actually do the uh, revamp of electrical water pageant music. Is that correct? That's right. Yeah, we finished America on Parade, and I knew that Main Street Electrical Parade was coming back. In the meanwhile, the electrical water pageant had been using, this is my understanding, I wasn't there, so I'm only relating information that has been given to me. Um, It was my understanding that prior to the Main Street Electrical Parade arriving in Florida, the water pageant had been using Baroque Hoedown. And you could not have the water pageant using Borough Hoedown and the Main Street Electrical Parade using Borough Hoedown at the same park at the same time. It right. was just creatively not preferred. So Jim Christensen said, do you want to try water pageant music? Because it was pretty much the same look as the Electrical Parade would be, except it traveled across the water instead of down the street. So I said, sure, and we set up the Jack Wagner dining room studio once again (laughs) and did music for the water pageant. And it was uh, Jim and myself and Jack producing, and they sent me to Florida to get that set up and implemented, and I did. And when I came back, they said, okay, what ideas do you have for the electrical parade? Oh wow! So that was your entree into that. That's... Yeah, that was uh, that was the dues I had to pay. Right. <laughs> but you know, it's funny though that that has always been one of my favorite little quirky things at Walt Disney World, and that music uh, that you did lasted for twenty years there. Yeah, I like doing things that last a while. <laughs> yeah, well, you've done quite a few. Where did the idea to use the handle come from? Because that that's just so perfect. In such an odd way, because that shows just like I said, it's really quirky, but uh, it feels so right. And that's that was my entrance to the handle and water music and all that. So I don't recall the specific decision process, but it seemed also obvious to me that that was what I wanted to try. Right. Um, it may be that an earlier version of the water pageant had used the classical recording of water uh, music. I, uh-huh. I don't know really. Yeah. Um, in the last couple of years, there have been people trying to unravel the mystery of what the electrical water pageant music really was from day one <laughs> through the new version in 77. And I've talked to a couple of Disney executives that were around, and they're a little bit hazy on it. Jim Christensen didn't have a specific memory. Uh, I only know what what Jack told me, and and that was that it was Baroque Hoedown. Yeah. I mean, that was thrown together pretty late in the game, I feel like, as as an event for when the opening of the Polynesian, right? I think that's when they put it together. That's when they first put it. I have a small um, vinyl soundtrack for the electrical for the water parade and it is baroque hoedown so it's that's point, right that's that is what it was it, yeah somebody at the record company somebody at the record company made a big mistake 
<laughs> yeah, I I pondered over that. You know, when they when they called me up, I said, I know I have this record somewhere, and I found it, and it says Electrical Water Pageant, and the artwork is Electrical Water Pageant, yes. but the content is exactly the same as the Main Street Electrical Parade record from '77. Interesting. I was so excited when I got it because I would I would echo what Jeff said. The your version of it is by far my favorite version. It's a just a fantastic little piece of soundtrack. I was so excited when I got this record. Then I played it, and it was not it was not what I was looking for. So it was, <laughs> it was I a surprise, a historical surprise <laughs> on well, behalf yeah. of the park. All right, so you get to do the Main Street Electrical Parade. Now, you had seen this before, and uh, can you tell me about how that music was developed? Because there was some ahead of you joining the project, and then you came on board and did some. My desire to work on the Main Street Electrical Parade, though initially nonspecific, was a very strong reaction I had to seeing the first parade. I had gone to Disneyland with some friends with the intent of spending the entire day from opening to closing, experiencing every ride and attraction. In other words, it was to be a Disneyland saturation day. And one of the impetus for uh, going and doing this was that there was the electrical parade at night. And I sat on the curb and then this oscillator sweep happened and the lights went out and then the original unedited Baroque hoedown track faded up and out of the darkness came these gorgeous floats made of Christmas lights. And it was just such an amazing experience. I'd never seen anything like it. I had been experimenting with electronic music, so I tied into that right away. And I came away from that performance just thinking, I've got to do this. I have to figure out how this and things like it become my career. And as I stood up, totally overwhelmed, we were going to the Matterhorn next. And I didn't realize that there was still a curb underneath my feet. And I tripped and <laughs> tore my pants and bloodied my knee and didn't even know it until I got off the Matterhorn. Uh, 20, 25 minutes later. I was just so stunned and so overcome with this idea of that there's something out there for me. Yeah, that's a powerful experience. That's, that's hilarious. So they had the Baroque down, and they Paul Beaver worked on that with Jim Christensen. Am I correct in that? Yeah. In 1972, when the first Main Street Electrical Parade was in development, Bob Yanni had wanted to do something different. And the ideas of what he wanted to do have varied depending who you talk to. Some say he wanted to use the band organ. Some say he wanted to use an orchestra. Jack said he wanted to use Night on Bald Mountain. Oh. And that sent Jack in a, in a hurry back to his record collection saying, no, I can do better than this. And he found Baroque down, And with Jim, they figured out that they could make it into a loop. And because of the simple 145 harmonic structure, they could overlay just about anything with it. So this idea of doing an inverted It's a Small World, where the floats go past you instead of you riding past them, they proceeded to create a demo. And Paul Beaver was the studio musician that was available who had a 
Moog in his studio. So they went up to L.A. and they created a demo for Bob saying, we think this is better than Night on Bald Mountain. What do you think? And Bob, smart guy that he was, said, yep, you're right. Go with it. So Paul Beaver and Jim Christensen worked together on the first Electrical Parade tracks in 1972. Then Paul Beaver had a brain hemorrhage and passed away. And that was right about the same time that the Moog representative was telling Jack about me. So right place, right time, I guess. I'm sorry that Paul had to pass, but that was my opening. And so when you got involved in bringing the parade back uh, and doing the music for it, were you rebuilding those tracks or working with the existing tracks? With some of both. Uh, a couple of the tracks, uh, the original Cinderella and the original Dumbo track, were just fine as they were. Um, I redid the uh, the Blue Fairy, Alice uh, track, uh, and a couple other things. But most of all, I wanted to fix the opening because the parade as I had experienced it in 1973 was there was this oscillator sweep and then the lights went out and then broke down faded up slowly and i thought you know the lights going out is a moment that really needs to be highlighted and the parade needs to kick off somehow with some sort of a an announcement a fanfare a, an actual beginning and the trick was to figure out how to do a beginning in each of the five park zones that got you into the continuous loop without interrupting the loop. So I invented how to do that. And that gave the man with the knobs something else to do. <laughs> That's right. I, I uh, was on college program the summer they brought it back, uh, 1999 to Walt Disney World. So I got to work the end of Spectrum Magic Parade Control because I worked on the Skyway and it would close down every day because of that rain you were talking about. I worked uh, Spectrum Magic, and then it became Main Street Electrical Parade. And something about that intro is just, I mean, it really works so well. I'm, I'm sure you know that, but it's its amazing to see the the uh, power it has over people. That specific parade, it's just so amazing, the excitement level it creates. That's pretty cool. My favorite thing to do is to be on Main Street behind people as they're experiencing this. And when the oscillators sweep down and the lights go out and this big sort of ooh mm -hmm. rises up. And then when the tune starts, they start clapping. Right. So, you know, before the parade even arrives, we've got them in our pocket. Yeah, that, that song, like you said, it's perfect harmonically for just adding in whatever you want to. But you, uh, so we're, we're doing a show on this 1980 Disneyland Walt Disney World soundtrack that came out. And the first track is this mainstream electrical parade medley. One of the songs is called A Bit Bubbly, I've seen on the Disney World soundtrack. And it was uh, credited to you. Did you just write that underwater piece? That's correct. Well, that I always loved that piece, and that wasn't based on any like quoting anything from Disney. No, that unit actually evolved from a briny deep unit, and 
I forget how exactly it came about, but Jim had suggested doing something with sonar. You know, people just sort of associate that ping, ping, ping sound. Um, and I thought, oh, that's easy. I can make that musical. So I basically wrote uh, a counter melody to Baroque Hoedown so it would lay inconspicuously and yet conspicuously over the top. Yeah, it's so beautiful. I mean, it's funny that because every, every other segment pretty much has a quote of something. So that's pretty unique. So when you're making a track for this, everything's still monophonic, correct? Which means you can only play one note at a time. Uh, that's correct at that point. Well, no. The Prophet 5 synthesizer came along in late 70s, I think. That that was what we used for the announcement. I played the Prophet 5 through the vocoder to create the opening announcement. But the parade tracks were basically monophonic. It, it was a very simple soundtrack. I mean, very simple ideas, just counter melodies, because the Baroque Hoedown basic track was still the same as the original recording. Mm -hmm. I had just separated the right channel from the left channel. And as you know, in those early days, stereo wasn't very sophisticated. It was basically two passes on a two-track tape machine. So on the left was all of the rhythm, and on the right were a bunch of various synthesizer overdubs. So I took that away, and that enabled me to to revisualize or reoralize, whatever the word is, the main melody, change the bass line, add some different counter melodies and things, uh, and create basically a new basic track that then we put under every unit. Okay. And, I mean, how many tracks of stuff is on that roughly? I mean... Every unit was less than 16 tracks. Wow, that's most amazing. Of, most of them were eight. Most of them were eight to 10. But you got to remember the Baroque Hoedown Foundation did most of the work. That makes sense. Because it feels so full and lush, but... You know, these days it would have how many, you know, just be jam-packed. So you're just dubbing those things one at a time to the tape machine and, and kind of going again, correct? Right. But somewhere along the way you get, because uh, in this documentary, you have a synclavier there and you're sequencing with it. When did that come about? Where you're... That was 1985. Mm -hmm. And that was the series of tracks that we added for Main Street Electrical Parade, Tokyo Disneyland. Okay. We added we added four units. We added the Swans, related to absolutely nothing. <laughs> uh, the uh, new Pinocchio Pleasure Island unit, um, Peter Pan pirate ship, and what was the fourth one? I should know this. There were four tracks. I'll leave it at that. Well, I mean, that's another thing. Is you worked on that, and they kept adding different and, and taking out. I, I couldn't believe it once I looked into it, how many promotional floats came in and, and went out. And on the soundtrack, there's a, something called the Neon Ending, which I had to look up and figure out what it is. Can you talk about that and what it was like? Yeah, there was a, a thought. Bob Yanni had this idea that the parade needed something futuristic as a finale and something other than just more Christmas lights for another float. So this idea to do something with neon came about and the idea that it would be a sort of a cornucopia of Disney characters. So there were these rotating platforms with mirrors uh, would be twirling and reflecting and then the neon outlines 
would would be there and it would be a Disney medley. So that float lasted, I think, only one year. Um, it just, it visually was jarring. It wasn't anything, you know, and musically, it was drums, bass, and guitar, and it wasn't thematically consistent. The same way that the visual was a bit out of character, the music was also out of character, and it just didn't survive. Yeah, it's funny. As we grew up on this soundtrack, and I mean, that's why we're doing a whole episode about it, it's it was a made a big deal, and that was always so confusing to me because you were so used to it ending with the uh, stars and stripes, and that whole thing. And I could never figure out what it was until you know we started doing this. But it, it's something else. If people have a chance to look at it on YouTube, there's some grainy video of it. Yeah, I played drums on that, by the way. Hey, that's that's great. There's some in the bass line uh, as a bass player that it really gets me every time. There's well, a- that was Minimog bass. Yeah, I figured. Um, so also in this documentary, there is a, I just need some explanation because there's a giant 24, like track two inch tape machine running. And then there's like a, a rack of what looked like eight tracks to me in the audio control. How did that, how did that system work? Was that running while the parade was going on? The electrical parade was a minute and three second loop, Mm -hmm. but we didn't want to be caught off guard with a loop breaking or something like that. And there was no way to run a bunch of independent loops easily together without a bin loop machine, which is a different kind of machine altogether. So what we would do is we would create the master mix of each unit a minute and three seconds long. And there would be a second channel would be Simpty. We transferred everything from the original Mag Stripe to Simpty when I came on board. And we would send off these mono loops with Simpty to Tom Durrell at Walt Disney World. And he would dub those one at a time with Simpty Lock onto a two-inch master. And then he would physically cut the two-inch master and make a loop, a physical loop. Then he would dub that physical loop for an hour and 15 minutes onto another 16 track. So we had an end-to-end parade playback tape Mm. that would not uh, be subject to loop failures or any other problem. Although a couple of times when floats would get stuck on Main Street, the tape would run out on the end. Oh, gosh. So the the text would quickly rethread it and then because the sound was still live in the zones, you might hear um, and then requeue it and everything would come back to life. Wow. How long did it take them to abandon the the tape technology? Well, we were still using tape technology um, for Party Gras, the 35th. And we actually had... We were using uh, specific frequency tones on different tracks to trigger other things. We had uh-huh. um, the Party Gras travel loop when the, parade, when the parades were moving would come to a certain point and then our control system, when it was armed to take a show stop, would wait for that tone. That tone would start a four-track playback, which had the show on it, 
And when that four track got to the end, there was a, a piece of silver tape on the four track that would restart the two inch. So we, we had tape machines talking to each other. That is wild. That's, that's yeah, so I many things to out. go wrong. Yeah, that was <laughs> when they said, we're going to do a show stop. I, I had to figure out how we were going to accomplish that. And fortunately, wow. it wasn't that complicated. It just required thinking outside of the end-to-end parade tape idea. Sure, sure. And so I've seen a picture with you uh, with meeting Perry and Kingsley, the guys who wrote Baroque Who Down. Is that right? Yeah. I met Jean-Jacques Perry in 2006. Okay, okay Jean-Jacques Perry. I invited uh, him to come down to California Adventure. We had never met up to that point. And I knew he was getting old and had difficulty traveling and was going to be in Los Angeles. And I thought, I've got to meet him, and I want Jim Christensen to meet him, and I want him to meet Jim Christensen. Um, sadly, Jack had already passed by that time. But I just thought this, this would be the, the team reunion. And so uh, Jean-Jacques and his daughter came down to the park and got to experience Main Street Electrical Parade together at California Adventure. I was always curious about what their reaction was to Baroque Hoedown being used and becoming so beloved. And it was for the, I mean, they were working in, I mean, they weren't obscure because they were on all kinds of TV shows and everything, but the level of uh, love they get from this and probably a lot of people don't know they're responsible for it. I mean, do you have any sense about what their thoughts were? I do. Um, He's, forever thrilled and unfortunately for him and Gershon the original Baroque Hoedown recording was a work for hire for Vanguard Records which meant mm. that they were paid and that was it that was the end of it oh no uh, so they never got to really wallow in the success or enjoy the fruits of their labor other than just to be pleased and amazed at the cultural um classic that it has become right and and uh, i asked jean-jacques if he was particularly disappointed and he's you know being a very very kind and caring person he says no i just want people to be happy it's i love it that's amazing well it certainly has made a bunch of people happy through the years that's for sure how long did you work on that parade because you you were the musical director for quite some time with it and when, when did you leave doing that well, it was very sporadic because once we recorded tracks, the parade would you know live for a year or two years until something new was needed. Mm-hmm. So the actual working time on it was probably around a week. And then for each additional track that we created through the years, it might have been a couple of days. But they, as I said before, the, they weren't very sophisticated because we had this great Baroque hoedown foundation to build on um it was just a question of finding the right character and fitting the right melodies and then finding a sound and playing them in so along comes epcot when did you hear about this project and when did you get looped into working on a lagoon show for epcot originally bob yanni contacted me in late 1981 and he said i'm developing a show for Epcot and I need a soundtrack and I want it to be like switched on classics 
but not disco beat. Mm. What can you come up with? So I hid out for a couple of months and listened to a bazillion classical pieces and picked what I felt were the the main melodies that people would not only react to, but that could be sequenced to go from one into another, into another, into another. In other words, it had to have some musical form and direction in order to be a satisfying piece. The concept of the show was great entertainment spectacles, parades, pageants, celebrations, coronations, basically live entertainment spectacles throughout history and around the world. So classical pretty much covered most of those bases, and that's the direction that we took. So I created this sort of patchwork soundtrack. Bob gave his approval, and I went in the studio and spent about three months, six days a week, 10 hours a day, recording track by track, uh, building up a synthetic orchestra to perform all these pieces. And the show opened, and the show was not liked by upper management, and it was deemed never to be shown again. And that was Carnival de Lumiere, correct? That's correct. Yeah. And here's, you know, here's once again the biggest project I had worked on about to be tossed out the door, and I said, I cannot allow this to happen. I've got to see what I can, what mischief can I get up to to ensure that this soundtrack is going to live a while. And so I teamed up with a friend, Adam Bezark, and went to then Vice President Dennis Despy and convinced him to let us pitch a new show. And he gave us permission. He, he cautioned that we're going to bring in other professional producers and see what they have to say, but we'll give you a shot. And so is this your first foray into this kind of outside the music first kind of world into production form? Yeah, but at this point, it it was unknown where this was going to lead. It was just pitching sure. an idea. You know, mm-hmm. I didn't realize, I didn't think far enough ahead to say, so if they say yes, what am I going to do? Right. What does it mean? Um, what does a Lagoon Show director do? I didn't really process that just wanted to survive the music track and see where that went. So Adam and I did our pitch, and I got the call. Okay, you guys are in show business, <laughs> Lagoon show business. Let's go. Wow. And so that led to a New World Fantasy, which was the first summer show at Epcot starting in 1983. Okay, so had you been down to see the, the debut of the Carnival de Lumiere? Oh, yes. I was there when they pronounced it unusable. What was the problem? The problem was that the projection technology was basically standard Kodak slide projectors on rear projection screens at 600 feet away um, with highly detailed, low-contrast imagery. Mm. It was too much information to see clearly and to process. And it was a very sophisticated show concept that when we saw it in the context of Epcot felt a little bit out of place. Mm. You know, you, you could make an argument for it, but in practice, looking at those images, 
it just didn't match the music. For example, in the same way that the lights of the electrical parade visually match the musical texture. Right. right. There was just a, a disconnect. And so they were all up for saving the music track, but they said, absolutely, we're not having those projections anymore. It, it turned out we had to reuse the projection barges because there was a large expenditure in getting them built. So we did a reformat, and instead of four pictures on four corners of a big screen, we put two barges together, so we had eight times the visual area, and we used one image across the whole super barge, as we called it. Interesting. So so you get the job of doing this New World Fantasy, and t- take us through that. How was that experience? That was a great learning experience in how projects get done in theme park land. <laughs> You know, suddenly there's engineers and safety people and um, watercraft people and image consultants and slide production. And there's all these things, you know, that were new to me at that point. And I was supposed to be wrangling them all into submission. So it was, you know, learn fast. We had a great company called Image Stream out of LA uh, doing the slide production for us. We identif- I identified uh, some artists that would do the artwork for us, and they camped out at Image Stream for three months to produce the artwork. And then Image Stream would do the slide programming. And basically, Adam and I, you know, said, that looks good change that, fix that, and then uh, coordinated all of the timing and the implementation at Walt Disney World prior to the show opening. And how did that show differ? Uh, except for obviously the projections were different. But musically, it's it's the same, correct? Did you use the same soundtrack? Carnival de Lumiere was four movements. We lost, we took away one of the movements for New World Fantasy because mm-hmm. we felt it that four was just a bit too much it was it was 22 or 23 minutes and we felt that the show was better at uh, 12 to 18. Mm -hmm. so we took a whole section out and uh, that remained in that form for the following summer which was laser phonic fantasy and that came about because new world fantasy was too successful they said what happened was people were coming out of restaurants on the South Shore and camping out along the North Shore to see New World Fantasy because it was presented um, proscenium style. And so there was all this lost revenue from the restaurants and shops <laughs> along the South Shore. So the edict was, you can keep the music, but we got to come up with a way to do this show in the round. And so lasers were a hot item and we were basically talked into using lasers and that presented a number of challenges to do them in the round and particularly from the middle of a body of water because you need power. So we laid a lot of really large power cables out to the middle of the lagoon and we built a concrete slip, a place for the barge to dock. And we wrestled with the FAA for a while. (laughs) 
it was, you know, again, this doing these shows, they're not the same thing each time you do it. There's a new challenge that comes along when you introduce a new element or you take something away and you have to fill that void with something. So lasers, those were just, you say you got talked into it. Were you skeptical at the time? No, not at all. Uh, but entertainment was at that point in time sort of responding to what marketing wanted to get out of entertainment. Mm -hmm. And marketing was hot on being able to call it laser something. Right. And Adam and I both felt that leaning too heavily on the lasers was going to be a disappointment because at that point they were beams in air and you did have humid air. So the beams were quite visible in Florida. But the lagoon is 42 acres, and that to fill that sky required a lot more lasers than Disney could afford. Mm. So we struggled with how to create some visual content uh, to support the beams, and you could still call it lasers. And during one of our tests at Disney Imagineering, we happened to be in the vicinity of some person who came through with a spray bottle of something, and the the droplets fell across the laser beam and we saw it and we go, hey, what's that? Hmm. So we came up with the idea of rear projecting lasers onto water screens. And we hustled off to Walt Disney World with a laser and some hoses and rigged up demos. And we found out that it's pretty amazing looking. It's kind of like diamonds sparkling in the sky. Some people have likened it to holograms. So we figured out that we could shoot lasers from the center of the lagoon over the backs of the four fountain barges if we could put a water screen up in the air. So that became the vehicle that we attempted to use for uh, visual imagery that was the hallmark of laserphonic fantasy. And then we had the we had the barge in the middle with all the laser power on it, and we thought we need to create something out of this centerpiece. So we created a spherical fiber optic ball, which essentially is doing the same thing that the Reflections of Earth barge is doing, except with fiber optics placed around the sphere to create a coherent screen when we scanned the fiber bundle from down below in the laser room. Hmm. Wow. Ideas, ideas evolve, you know, yeah, it's right. uh, just a new way of looking at, at what you can do with a ball in the middle of a lagoon. <laughs> right. uh, we'll, we'll come back to the Ep- Epcot Lagoon, but a little later you would release some solo records that oh, you mentioned one, Bachbusters. They would further this kind of classical music synthesizer uh, concept. How did those come about? I was working part-time at a studio called International Automated Media in Irvine. And this is the studio where I had recorded the original Carnival de Lumiere. And in the course of my hanging out at the studio, I met the record mastering engineer for Telarc Records. And he told the president of Telarc, Bob Woods, about me and my synthesizers and my synclavier. 
And uh, Bob Woods said, hey, would you like to create a synthesizer piece for a compact disc? Now, this was relatively early in compact disc history, but Telarc was at the forefront of bringing classical music and high dynamic range music onto classical disc and into the marketplace. And so he said, you know, what can you give us with, you know, the highest highs and the lowest lows and the most dynamic range? Create something that we can put on a CD and we'll put it out. It was part of a collection called Time Warp. And so I created this five-minute piece and the CD did very, very well. It was sort of the hit of the consumer electronics show in the stereo systems area where people were using it to demonstrate their speakers and talk up, you know, what kinds of signals and dynamic range they could handle. It became a sales tool and uh, enjoyed success with the rest of the content on the CD, which was major uh, sci-fi movie themes. And uh, so that was my introduction to Telarc. And with the success on that, Bob said, if you could do a solo project, what would you do? And I didn't hesitate at all. And I said, I would do a new Switched on Bach. Hmm. And that became Bachbusters. I was curious. It, it sold very well. It charted on the Billboard chart. Did, did you have any backlash? Because I know Switched on Bach had a little bit of backlash from the classical community. Did, did you encounter that at all? There was some, yeah. but I sort of shrugged it off. You know, I'd been yeah. around long enough to know that anything is going to get good reviews and bad reviews. <laughs> That's true. Um, I think the one that I found the most annoying was in Keyboard Magazine. Um, but I was, I had some redemption a couple of months later when the readers wrote in and said, you guys are crazy. It's great. Yeah, there we go. That's, so I got my revenge. Yeah, they're great records. And I saw also, this is the kind of, you're, you've moved into producing shows. You helped put together the 50th anniversary of the Golden Gate Bridge. How was that? It was amazing and came with its own set of challenges. I'm sure. Uh, <laughs> yeah. I was still working with uh, Adam at that point, and we flew up to San Francisco uh, to meet with uh, Jim Souza of Pyro Spectaculars, uh, who had been given the contract to do the show and Jim said we need a soundtrack Don do you want to engineer the soundtrack produce the music Adam do you want to write the script so we said sure we went to look um, and the first thing we both saw and agreed on was there's this beautiful bridge we have to do fireworks all the way across right, right? and Jim Souza smacked his forehead and says oh my god of course now I have to do it have to figure <laughs> out how to do that and this is before there were um programmable firing systems. So for him, uh, it turned out to be how many Boy Scouts can you commandeer and give them batteries with wires and give them radios and teach them which time to touch the wires to the batteries. Wow. And loading the bridge took several, several days. I think it took a week to get everything out and mounted on the bridge for this one finale effect. Um, you know, it was 
a politically charged environment. There was a group that felt that the Golden Gate Bridge was of national significance, but there were no national sponsors stepping up to carry the telecast. There were, uh, so the funds had to be raised privately and the, the lighting for the 50th anniversary of the bridge was not completed in time. So we had to hire a lighting company to put up some temporary lighting so we would have a queue. Um, it was a challenge, but it was a a lot of fun and it was amazing to be part of the crowd that got to walk on the bridge for the first time in 30, 40 years. I don't know how long it was, but, uh, everybody crowded onto the bridge and then realized that you meet in the middle. Now there's nowhere to go. So you, (laughs) you turn around to leave and everybody's still crowding on. So (laughs) there's no moving on the bridge and what we didn't know at the time, but we saw a lot of helicopters flying around. There was great concern that the bridge flattening out, as it did under the weight of all these people, was ripe for disaster. Oh my Fortunately, goodness. no disaster ensued, and we all got off safely, but we stood in place for a couple of hours before the people at the far ends realized they had to get out. An unforeseen problem. <laughs> yeah. Uh, that's funny. So... Uh, after back to the lagoon, we have illuminations next. How, how are you involved in that? Adam and I were invited to a dinner with the vice president of entertainment who said, marketing has come up with this word and they want a show to sell that goes with the word. The word was illuminations. We'll put lights on all the pavilions, on all the countries, and it will be, it shall be a show and you shall create it. So we did a lot of brainstorming and trying to figure out what's the best way to highlight all these different countries and so on. And Michael Eisner was still sold on my original classical soundtrack. He says, why would you get rid of something that everybody loves? And we said, because it's not Italy specific. It's not Mexico specific. It's not Morocco specific. And to do a show about the pavilions, you have to kind of go in that direction. So he said, well, then just rearrange the rest of it from what you already have for orchestra and do the country part separately. And that's what we did. I've always been curious, why didn't they involve the Morocco and Norway pavilions in this? Do you know? I do. And it's money. (laughs) Well, There are a number of logistical problems. Um, I'm not sure when those pavilions were exactly finished construction-wise, but when we started Illuminations, I think they were still in construction. And when the show was budgeted, we quickly learned that we didn't really have enough money to do what we wanted to do in some of the places. So we figured out, well... If these countries aren't willing to chip in, then we're just going to have to leave them out for now. We'll come back later. And the contractor that had been doing all the lighting on the other pavilions had already finished, packed up, and left to go on a different project. So even though the argument was made later on that, well, we can scrape up enough money to do this, the contractor was out of the picture already, and the show was about to open. So they had to sit there dark for a while. And were you involved in the holiday versions of that as well? Yes. Um, 
I was asked to come in and visualize and program a show that had been conceived by Jay Smith, who was um, had taken over creative direction of the Lagoon Show for a Christmas presentation. And Jay had already picked out music, and they had actually already recorded the soundtrack. And so I was to mix it, uh, put the icing on it, and then figure out, okay, which barge is doing which color lights, flashing to what beats, what pyro wow. do we want, where is that launched from, to do basically the logistic staging to the music that Jay had picked out. Interesting, interesting. The one thing that um, nobody had done at that point was a sideways firework. And air launch was in the early stages, and I had been brought in to be creative director on the air launch project to basically help the technical people figure out, you know, what do you want to actually do with this when we put it in a show? What are the creative things that uh, you want to do or might envision that somebody would do? So right away, my mind went to, how do we create a shooting star across the lagoon? Mm. And so we developed that, and it looked pretty cool. And when Sandy Patty uh, hits the high note in Oh Holy Night, I just wanted to see this shooting star head off across the lagoon. So that's what we did. Uh, yeah, and that was would even come to a, a more... A permanent thing for uh, reflections of Earth, of course. Were yeah. you were you involved in Illuminations Twenty Five? No. Okay. Um, no, I took I took a, a a short vacation from Lagoon shows. Right, but not not for long, not for long. So, I mean, how did Illuminations kind of innovate beyond what what was there before uh, the the original Illuminations? Yes. Yes. The idea for the original Illuminations was to feature each country, to give each country its own moment. Since you're standing around and they're all pretty obvious, um, just staring at the center of the lagoon for 15 minutes um, needed to an idea that needed to be refreshed. So this idea of looking around at the different, different pavilions and lighting them each up um, was the direction to go. So we looked at all of the pavilions. Initially, we thought we can project, we can do projection mapping on Germany and maybe Canada, maybe Mexico. Uh, turned out that there weren't a lot of opportunities to projection map because most of the buildings were not large, flat, blank areas mm -hmm. like Germany. Uh, so we put some water pageant-type light screens on the rooftops that would have some uh, imagery that would light up uh, at, to illustrate uh, various cultural ideas from that land. Um, and then created the music for that middle section of the show, uh, trying our best to keep the songs recognizable, uh, which proved to be a bit of a challenge for Canada. Without playing the national anthem of Canada, <laughs> there isn't really anything particularly Canadian to latch on to, or at least there wasn't at that time. Um, and without Norway and Morocco, you know, they had to stay dark and we had to stay silent. <laughs> um, we brought in the moving lights uh, so that you could have these beams from the sky sweeping over to the pavilion that was about to be illuminated to help people 
know where they were supposed to look um, because that was one of the problems. If you were standing on the east side and Mexico is behind you, you don't really know what's happening in time until it's almost over because each pavilion got its 10 to 15 seconds of feature and then we had to move on because there's too many pavilions. So we used the, uh, the sweeping searchlights to get people hip to where the next action was going to occur. Mm. I've always said that one of the greatest moments in any Disney theme park show, in any Disney anything really, is that moment in that show when the lights swung in with the music with Rhapsody in Blue on the American Adventure. Oh, just yeah. the motion of the lights along with that note from Rhapsody in Blue is just an absolutely perfect moment. Thank you. <laughs> so good job on that. <laughs> there was another moment in um, Laserphonic where during Great Gates of Kiev, we had the lights converging high overhead and then just brought them all down. And it was surprising how much you could feel that ceiling coming down. It made you kind of almost want to crouch over a little bit. Huh. Mm -hmm. felt like now my world is coming in. Um, and that was also a great feeling. And that's was the inspiration for doing that um, Rhapsody in Blue moment. Wow. Yeah. And I, I remember that Germany projection was so, uh, you just couldn't figure out how it was done as, when I was growing up. And now that it's common, uh, all that projection mapping, but back then it was, it just was so revolutionary. It seemed like. We did um, projection mapping on the Tokyo Castle for. Um, Starlight Magic at Tokyo Disneyland, we did projection mapping also, uh, turning the castle multicolors and using gobos to project images and so on. And that technology was still very primitive. At that time, you had to take pictures at the specific locations where the projectors would be, and then someone had to actually draw all the artwork uh, and conform it to the various shapes of the castle. So we were basically relegated to either still images or patterns or whatever we could do with a lighting gobo and a moving light fixture. I wish I'd had some of this new technology back then. Yeah, it's, it's incredible. Um, so you said you, you took a few years off from the Lagoon show, but then you were back. How did the Reflections of Earth process start out for you? Well, this is a continuation of the air launch development project. Tom Craven, who was the technical director for Walt Disney World Entertainment, had contracted with me to come up with a millennium concept that would spread throughout the entire world on behalf of Disney uh, and feature the air launch fireworks technology. In, in as much as the year 2000 was in theory that 2000th anniversary of the or the 1000th anniversary of the invest, invention of black powder and fireworks uh hmm. it seemed you know here's disney uh, a millennium later with a new technology on an ancient technology there were all kinds of marketing messages that could be built around this idea so i developed a show concept for every disney park around the world it involved the cruise lines it involved the studio it was a massive idea because I wanted to just 
given the opportunity, I wanted to throw as much out there as possible, thinking that you know they'll pick and choose and we'll end up doing something. You always include something that can be cut because you know it will. Um, <laughs> so I pitched that, and Disney hadn't really finished processing what they wanted the millennium message of the company to be. Um, Michael Eisner was working at the studio end trying to get people moving on the millennium and what is it. Entertainment was moving separately on the entertainment, what are we doing for it? And there were these two diverging efforts. And my concept tried to sort of merge them into one company-wide perspective on this unique moment that the world would be paying attention to. So I did my pitch and everybody kind of went, oh, there's a lot to think about there. And uh, I think they were scared because they realized that even though it was 1996 at that point, and you only had four years left, and four years isn't very long when you're talking about commandeering the entire fireworks production capability of the world three years from now. Right. So I was working on this giant round-the-world fireworks project, and... Judson Green or someone in marketing had had given it the name Skylenium, which just seemed absurd to me. So <laughs> when I did my pitch to Judson, I had made up a, a PowerPoint presentation with this funny looking logo that I had taken the symbol that of the artist formerly known as Prince and I'd put a little fireworks <laughs> spurt on the top. And Judson Green looked at it, and he goes, he, he got this quizzical look on his face like, I kind of know what that is. But he said, what is that? And I said, that is the show formerly known as Skylenium. <laughs> <laughs> and out of those ongoing Millennium discussions, there were other pitches for other Lagoon Show ideas, all of which sort of fell into the realm of, you got to be kidding me. Um, and eventually one that looked like it might get some attention from Eisner uh, was just not economically feasible at all, and it was way off the creative deep end. It involved horses walking across the water from one island to another, um, <laughs> things that were just terrifically impractical to expect a horse to do and other ideas like that. But there were several elements that, we had talked about over many years about incorporating into a lagoon show. And one of those was fire. So when I took a couple of steps back and really thought about what was I trying to say about the millennium, it just seemed like, okay, we got, we're going to have some fire. We're going to have a centerpiece of some sort. We're going to have fireworks, but what's the story? Well, the story, how about, how about we do the story of earth? Because that's, that's a concept that you can jump off with fire. You can have your imagery section that's sort of a recap of life on the planet, and then you can move into the future and celebrate. In looking back now at the other Lagoon shows, New World Fantasy, Laserphonic Fantasy, Illuminations, they're sort of different angle broad strokes on the same theme, but they had never been sort of presented at the right time in the right context 
to drive home the idea that the earth we live on is a truly remarkable place and the fact that we're even alive to be here and count a thousand years is something that people should wake up to and realize that they are present for this unique moment right. and then they said okay do that <laughs> story of my life stepping up saying well what about this guys and they go all right if you think you can do that then do that that's great <laughs> yeah it really does feel like the kind of capstone of of what the previous shows are going for a really great uh, version of the same, you know, variations on a theme. But there were, there were some rumors early on that, that the uh, show was going to involve giant cranes. Was, was that part of the horse uh, big budget version of the show? Do you know, that was, or was that real? That was actually the, the impossible to build version that came before the right. impossible to train a horse to do <laughs> version. <laughs> Um, Mark Fisher, who had designed spectacular rock and roll touring shows for Pink Floyd and the Rolling Stones and so on, had come up with a concept that did involve giant cranes. There were three giant cranes meant to represent a mama, a papa, and a baby going into the new millennium. And the cranes would have water piped up to the heights and sprayed out to create wings and effects and so on there would be pyro loaded all the way up to the top of the cranes at the top of each crane would be a set of lights meant to look like eyes so that you would think they were living creatures of some sort and as they started trying to engineer the weight loads and the angles and the foundation requirements and the size of the barges needed to support that um, things kept getting smaller and more expensive at the same time, which was the wrong direction for both. And so that, it was about the time that they realized that just wasn't going to cut it, um, that they started casting about for new ideas. And then the horse show, we have a crane show and a horse show. Um, <laughs> that idea was bandied about for a while. And there were some other ideas too. And then I just happened to be on an airplane trying to process all of this thought about what is the millennium? What are the toys that we can make work? How do we fit it into a budget box that works? And from all the previous shows that I'd worked on, I really understood the budgeting process and had an idea for what things could be affordable and how to repackage them. And that became a one-page pitch for what became Reflections of Earth. So a major part of this presentation is the fire barge. I remember that same summer I was in college program, some Imagineers came and spoke to us uh, the week they put it in the water, I think. And they were just over the moon about it. Uh, and they even named it after you. Uh, can you talk about the concept of it and, and why it was such a centerpiece for you and your idea? Well, there's not a whole lot of ways to create water in the, or fire rather, in the middle of water. So you got to have something that's going to create fire. It's going to catch fire and burn and create the effect that you want. And as I started to think about how do you do this, it was obvious it had to be some sort of barge that we could take out there and then take away during the day. So the engineers and I got together and they said, well, if we're going to have liquid propane on here we better put it under the water so the tank stays cool 
and if anything happens up above, it's not going to explode. You know, all the safety thing, all the <laughs> sensible engineering decisions were made ahead of time, and then they said, okay, so what do you want on top? And as I began looking at fire effects, there was basically shooting out and shooting up. And I wanted a much larger vocabulary because I didn't just want fire shooting out and shooting up. I wanted to create a, a sort of a musical choreography that might shoot this way and then swing around and then go up and then billow and do various things that I could actually create music to. So we got a bunch of pipes and a tank of propane and went out in the North Service area and started playing. It was uh, like every kid's, you know, dream to have to be able to play with fire and get paid for it. Yeah. So we tried different things. We tried creating spray nozzles. We tried, um, you know, multi pipes with multiple holes. We tried articulating arms, uh, but the one that really did it for me was an upside-down walk where you shoot the propane up into the bowl and light it as it comes out. So it creates almost like an umbrella of—it's like you created the fire to come out from under the umbrella, and the, and the walk was— not fixed it was movable so depending how the fire and the propane spray interacted it would create a movement and uh, an undulating sort of spray and that was very very uh, musical to me so we took uh, I think there were 14 different effects that we ended up with on our menu and I placed them around the barge in a pattern that made sense to me not sure that looking at it now it would make the same sense, but it worked out okay. <laughs> and then the question became, yep, we can build that. Now, how do you want to program it? And being a keyboard player, MIDI seemed like the perfect answer. <laughs> That's amazing. So we pulled out a, a, a programming trailer into Showcase Plaza, hooked up a MIDI keyboard, and I played the Inferno Barge. Wow. That is, yeah, that's the coolest instrument you've ever played, probably. Well, it's the <laughs> hottest one, I can tell you that. Right. That's right, yeah. Uh, yeah, you say it's musical. I always thought that that part uh, really, really syncs up so well with the music or the score. And you had Gavin Greenaway do the score. He did such a great job. And how did you come to select him? And what was working with him on the piece like? There's a very long story behind what led up to Gavin, but suffice it to say, Hans Zimmer said he would do it and then couldn't do it. Ah. And so it fell to him to say who could do it, since there was this sort of arrangement between uh, Hans and Michael. And so Hans said, I'll, I got a guy, I'll send him down. And Gavin showed up at my house and uh, I knew nothing about him. He had no demo tapes. Um, he didn't say a whole lot. I presented the show to him. I talked him through the emotions and the pacing and the whole form of the thing. I showed him working imagery that I had picked out of stock libraries to tell the story. And I said, what else can I give you? And he said, no, I got it. And he went away. <laughs> and, uh, 
I just had to cross my fingers and hope that some some magic happened, and it did. The first demo I got from Gavin uh, only a few weeks later was quite magical and indeed was in the right direction. It was compelling. It was sweeping. It was elegant in all the ways that the show needed to be. And it brought tears to my eyes, literally. I mean, Part of it was because the music was beautiful, and the other part was because the stress of wondering how are we going to make this really amazing was lifted at that moment when I realized that, yes, we are on the right path. This is going to work. Because music is the heart of the entire show. You know, you can mm, you sure. can put up slides and fireworks and fountains all night, but if you don't have the right musical support to take you on that emotional journey, it's just stuff. Yeah, it's it's an incredible piece. How how many how long did that take to to make happen? I mean, I imagine you were going back and forth and he's probably changing a few things. It seems like a a really complicated process. It wasn't that complicated because he was able to I guess we were in each other's heads. You know, I would describe something and he would go, "Oh, oh yeah, yeah, I know what to do." And then the next version would have that problem solved. Um, and we went through six or seven iterations, but after the first two, the changes were very, very small, just incremental tightenings and twistings and turnings. The one moment that we struggled with the most was the point in the show when humans are recognized as being on the planet. And with the hindsight of history, you know, that's a big deal, humans on a mm -hmm. planet floating through space. But at that point in time, nobody knew what a human was. There was nobody to wonder what a human was. There was no wondering. There were no humans. It's just something that <laughs> happened. So I wanted a musical moment that recognized that something has changed, but didn't make a big deal out of it. And there had always, in, in the previous versions leading up to that, there had always been a sort of an announcement at that point. And I said, no, 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 no. This is going to be, we're sneaking up, sneaking up on you. We're coming in the back door. Mm -hmm. um, and so it's that little oboe line when the harmonics change into a different key perspective that animates that particular story moment. That's such a great moment. And, and then you have the, uh, you actually wrote the lyrics for We Go On and Promise, if I have that right. Did, had you done a lot of lyric writing? What was that like? Well, what it was like was uh, part of Gavin's deal was to get the lyrics written, and he hadn't come up with anything satisfying, <laughs> and time was getting late. We were off to London to do recordings, and so we needed to know, is this a male or a female? Wow. What key is it going to be in? What are we going to do? And I said, you know, if you want anything done right, just do it. <laughs> and, you know, the deadline, I guess, was inspiration. I knew what I wanted to, them to say. I just hadn't tried to say it in lyric form. So once I got in that mindset, it wasn't terribly difficult because they're not long songs. They're not trying to convey right. a whole lot of content. They're trying to convey a perspective. Yeah, they're they're pretty lean on the you know the. There's no fat on that bone. It's it's really great. Uh, very powerful stuff. Had you had you done any lyric writing before? Is this your debut? Uh, not serious lyric writing. Mm -hmm. I 
I wrote a set of lyrics to the Main Street Electrical Parade, or Borough Co-Down, and this arrangement remains unpublished, unrecorded, and (laughs) unrecognized (laughs) to this very day. But maybe maybe someday. someday. (laughs) Uh, So one more question about illuminations. The, The Globe, it was pretty groundbreaking at the time with this LEDs. Can you tell us how it came into development? There had been some discussions about covering Spaceship Earth with LEDs. Oh, wow. And this was before I got involved. And the research showed that the weight of those would not be borne by the structure, could not be borne by the structure. And when I was told about this idea, I said, well, what was the the idea for content? What were they going to put on it? And... All I got back was shrugs, like we'll cross that bridge when we get a a sphere that we have to put images on. Um, But in trying to figure out how to replace the laser barge uh, with something more effective, I realized that LEDs were going to be part of this. And so we set about to reviewing different LED screens. And at this point in time, it was mostly signs along... um, the street that uh, street that goes into Kissimmee, I forget that highway number, but um, you know, signs saying free, uh, "T-shirt shop, stop here, free Disney World tickets, <laughs> right. discount this, discount that." Um, so there were, it was the beginning of the LED sign revolution, and the signage was pretty simplistic. But we got a number of vendors to bring in small signs, and we took them out to the uh, stall port the short takeoff and landing (laughs) port so we could look at them from five and 600 feet away and determine, you know, what, what pitch on the lights do we need in order to see an image? Uh, The resolution basically that would can allow us to convey things and who is bright enough. If we could see it in the daytime, it was probably bright enough. It might be too bright, but we evaluated these various technologies. And from those demos, we picked a vendor out of Tampa. And then when we looked at how many pixels it would take to cover the biggest sphere we could make, it was quite expensive. So then the idea came, are you gonna have the, the land masses be the screen or the ocean masses? And I thought, well, the ocean masses don't have a same kind of story to tell as the land masses do, so let's go with that. Plus, the oceans were just too big. So it became this open structure with uh, a non-solid surface with the continents being the storytellers. And each pixel had to be placed individually. Um, The resolution we decided on is one pixel per angle of... one, One pixel per degree of angle. So 360 degrees around a circle, there's 360 pixels pitch around the equator and 180 from North Pole to South Pole. Not all of which were used, but the resolution is only 180 by 360, which is a pretty low resolution video signal. But you get 500 feet away from that and you put it on a globe that is turning, then persistence of vision comes into play and inside your brain, the image is blurred just enough that you can make it out. The whole show of reflections was basically this kind of problem solving. You know, how do you deal with fire? How do you 
uh, communicate content across 500 feet. You know, how many LEDs can you afford? Um, what's the biggest barge you can get through the China Bridge? Um, <laughs> oh, yes. Yeah, that's it. Well, it solved all those problems. So these uh, illuminations finally uh, went away last year. And so that's, you say you like projects that last a long time. That Reflections of Earth, obviously the Main Street Electrical Parade, even though the electrical water pageant music that you had for 20 years. What does it feel like to have something last so long and become such a part of uh, the culture of these places? It's pretty amazing to think about the number of people that have been able to see something that I've been involved with. Yeah. And thinking back to that night in 1973, when I stood up and stumbled, I really stumbled onto something pretty cool. And <laughs> my unique experience early on with my classical music training, my keyboard training, finding the Minimo at the right time, uh, being involved with recording local bands, learning about audio technology, studying computer programming, all of these things have sort of fed different parts of my brain that enable me to take on these strange practical challenges. You know, how do you coordinate audio with a moving parade? How do you create fire in the middle of water? All of these things, every different aspect of a show that I've worked on or something I've created has come out of this blend of disciplines that I got exposed to at uh, starting at a very early age. That's incredible. Well, aside from anything we've mentioned, is there any other project that you've worked on that you're particularly fond of? Well, I've been non-exclusive with Disney this whole time for 45 years. And I've done a lot of things. I've, you know, played the, the Disney Calliope and the Rose Parade. Um, <laughs> when Bob Yanni left Disneyland, he went to work for Radio City Music Hall. It was refurbished and, and came back with a new life. And I did a couple of shows for Bob at Radio City Music Hall including a 90-minute synthesizer overlay to a show called America. Oh, wow. um, I created a light and music show for the National Harbor um, installation uh, in Maryland, just south of Washington, D.C. I've been a uh, music supervisor for the Boston 4th, 4th of July fireworks for five years, 2010 to 2014. Um, I was part of a massive Microsoft promotion when Windows Vista was launched. It was an online game created by 42 Entertainment called Vanishing Point. And the idea was that we would, that there would be live events around the world and the supercomputer users would be given coordinates, time and place to show up and something would happen and there would be puzzles. And if they solved the puzzles, they won a prize. And so creating shows in unusual situations <laughs> that required yeah. a lot of problem solving was something apparently I had sort of captured the market on at that point. And so we did things like take over the Bellagio Fountain show in the middle of a show, shut it down and do a presentation on uh, 
the, the water mist that was still hanging in the air and deliver these visual clues for the puzzles that uh, these folks had created. Wow. We did projection mapping for more clues. We did sky writing. And the big finale event was a fireworks show at Lake Union in Seattle. And I had to figure out, okay, how do we present clues to puzzles in fireworks? So what we did was... Uh, from the patterns, the number of shells that were fired, the angles they were fired, um, the timing, and you know every the quantities, everything that we could think of that you could vary in fireworks, had to be the answer to a puzzle. So the puzzles were redesigned for for directional information or for color content or quantity content, those sorts of things. So we could deliver the clues that they needed to solve their puzzles. Wow. The bad news is that nobody notified the Seattle residents that there was going to be a fireworks show <laughs> on this particular night. And I guess 911 lit up. Um, oh, my gosh. It was fun. Wow. It was a lot of fun. Well, we always ask as our last question, what's, what's up next for you? What do you have coming soon? Well, as you know, Disney's on furlough due to COVID-19. Mm-hmm. And... Uh, so at the moment, I'm working with Universal Studios on their new park in Beijing. Uh-huh. We're doing uh, parade control software for their opening shows uh, to start, I guess, early next spring. And at the moment, I'm just working on software here at home, uh, awaiting the travel possibilities to open back up. Indeed. It's a very unique time. Well, Don, we really appreciate you taking all this time to talk to us about a, an amazing career. We really appreciate you talking with us, but I really appreciate all your work and so many great moments uh, that have touched people so much. Thanks so much for being a part of it. My pleasure, guys. So that wraps up this month's interview with Mr. Don Dorsey. Michael, what did you think? Well, I obviously loved hearing from Don. As people can hear, my, uh, you did a great job on this interview. My contribution was being a drooling fanboy because, as I mentioned on our last episode, I was so excited for us to speak to Don because, I, you know, the projects that he's worked on have had such an outsized influence on me and the way I enjoy the parks. Uh, you talk about something like uh, the original Illuminations, which was probably along with Impressions to France, my introduction to classical music as a child right, right. and how I got into classical music as a kid. Uh, Illuminations, Reflections of Earth, which is just a classic, classic Disney experience. And even, you know, the soundtrack to the water parade that we grew up with, which I think is so iconic. Uh, I would love to see it make a comeback in some fashion. But it was really great to hear Don's stories. And I appreciate him taking the time to talk to us and kind of go into some of these legendary projects. Yes. I mean, it's crazy how many things, like you've mentioned before, how many things that we love 
connected to this one man's creative output. And that's, that's true to a lot of the Walt Disney Company from this era and before that, you know, people wear a lot of different hats and they get involved in a lot of different things. It's pretty special in that way. Right. And it's always funny how people can come in in the most innocuous of ways through happenstance and wind up you know, having these huge outsized roles and, you know, the people they interact with along the way. I loved hearing about, you know, his memories of Jack Wagner, who's such an important character. And you, you just see how things happen by happenstance and then, you know, snowball and become hugely influential. So, uh, it's, it's very interesting. And although I'll forever be sad, we didn't get, uh, Michael Eisner's horsey show on the lagoon at Epcot, uh, it's uh, it's uh, a very impressive list of projects. So thank you, Don, for taking part. And thank you, listeners, for listening, for that matter. Uh, you can get in touch with us at podcast at Progress City USA to let us know what you think about the interview. If you have maybe any follow-up questions for Don that we could pass along. Or if you have any ideas for people you'd like to hear from in the future, things you'd like to hear us talk about in the future. You can also reach us on Twitter and Facebook at Progress City USA. And Jeff is on Twitter at Jeff G. Crawford. Uh, anything else important? Just stay tuned for next month. We have another exciting interview and side B of that 1980 soundtrack. We're looking forward to sharing some more stories with you, and uh, we hope you enjoy them. But again, ask us some questions. We can answer them on the uh, second part of that two-parter episode, if you have any questions. That's right. That's right. Yeah, we've got a whole nother second half coming up with a whole nother list of memorable tunes. So until then, keep the record spinning and uh, drop us a line and hope you have a great day and we'll see you next time.